pain. I come by it honestly, but like a distant shadow kept at bay on a sunny day, it walks with me. And this constant companion soon winds up the pace, paving the way to the stone-clutched hands and blinded blame. I'm doing everything it takes to stay in the race. But this domain, pain's lair, this space, the anti-grace, day after day, it drags me up, out, and away, unrelenting, despite what I may say, requiring a locked step with its terms, pain, that violent mainstay. But there has got to be a better way, an easy yoke, a light of day, one where mere effect and causality bow down to divinity, the one who is beckoning come. So step beyond. Catch your breath, hurts, rot, wrong. But now's the time to find healing to the depths. Philip Yancey wrote the book, Where is God When It Hurts, way back in 1977, when he was just in his mid-20s. Despite his age, God had given Yancey a particular heart for those who were in pain and a wisdom that was beyond his years. In his first chapter, he tells the story of a woman named Claudia, who was a fellow member at his church. She had been married for about a year when she got a terrible diagnosis. She found out that she had Hodgkin's disease, a cancer of the lymph nodes, and the doctors at the time told her that she had probably less than a 50% chance of living. Well, the people in her church wanted to encourage her, but they weren't particularly encouraging or helpful. Her first visitor was an elder at the church who told her that she must have done something wrong in her life. There was something that displeased God. He said, somewhere you must have stepped out of God's will because things like this don't just happen to people. God uses circumstances in our life to warn us and to punish us. And he asked her, what do you think God's telling you? The next visitor wasn't particularly helpful either. It was a woman she barely knew. She was the most cheerful woman she'd ever met, though. She brought her flowers. She brought her encouraging poems. She read psalms to her. But when Claudia tried to change the subject to her illness, the woman didn't want to hear anything of it. She left the hospital room and never came back. Now, the next woman who visited was a fan of those faith healers on television. She told Claudia it was not God's will for anyone to be sick. She was naturally horrified at what the elder had told Claudia. She said that all Claudia needed to do was pray. And if she prayed and she believed enough, and if she could muster up the faith, then God would surely heal her illness. But Claudia couldn't quite muster up that faith and thought, maybe there's something wrong with me. I just don't know how to claim such promises. She was then visited by the most spiritual woman in her church. Now, this woman brought books on suffering to Claudia. She told Claudia that uh, suffering was what God was going to use in her life to help her become more like him. She said that Claudia was uh, somebody that God was really saying, I love you, and that 
that love was going to be shown to her through suffering. And poor Claudia couldn't get the idea of a God who would treat her in such a way out of her mind. Her pastor was the next to visit her, and he told her she was on a special mission from God. She had been chosen to suffer for Christ, and that she'd been chosen because of her great strength. Like an incredible athlete, she was to look at the challenges ahead of her like hurdles that she just simply needed to leap over. And if she could leap over those hurdles, she would be an example to all around of the goodness of God. And she really wished that God had chosen someone else for that assignment. Yancey says that he too visited Claudia. She told him all about the visitors from her church. She told him about the special assignment that the pastor said that God had for her. Yancey wrote, I had little advice for Claudia that day. In fact, I came away with even more questions. Why was she lying in the hospital bed while I stood beside her healthy? Something inside me recoiled as I heard her repeat the cliched comments from her visitors. Is Christianity supposed to make a sufferer feel even worse? And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're at our Loring Park campus today and you're saying, you know what, it has been a really difficult two years. It's been a difficult time in our city. It's been a difficult time because of COVID. And I'm, I'm in pain today and I'm asking God, where, where are you in all this? Maybe you're at our Edina campus today and you're saying, you know what, I, I'm wondering where God's at in my marriage. I'm wondering where he's at in my family. I'm wondering where he's at in my career. Maybe you're here at Eden Prairie and, and you're saying, God, I've, I've had a diagnosis that hasn't been so great. God, where are you in the midst of that? Maybe you're watching online this week and you're struggling with, God, where are you in my life? And maybe today you feel alone. Maybe you feel abandoned. And what I want to say to you is that you're in good company and God gets it. The problem of pain is nothing new. In fact, Philip Yancey took 257 pages to answer that question in his book. C.S. Lewis, the, the great author of uh, last century, wrote two books on pain. He wrote The Problem of Pain first. And it's a book that to this day is considered to be one of the greatest theological treasures as it relates to pain and answers the questions of why God would allow bad things to happen to good people. There are great answers in that book, but years later, Lewis's own wife would get bone cancer and die. And he found himself in a time of great questioning and doubt and wondering, God, where are you? And so he wrote, a grief observed, and he didn't use C.S. Lewis as the name. He used a pseudonym when it first came out because the conclusions that he came to were so different than the conclusions that he came to in The Problem of Pain. Both books are theological treasures. Both books describe the pain that we go through in our life. And both books speak about the fact that from time to time in our human existence, we will ask that question, where are you, God? Again, is that where you're at today? As we dive into the question of the pain of suffering and the pain of blame today, I want to suggest that life isn't fair. It's not fair that little girls get cancer. It's not fair that today in the state of Minnesota, there are over 2,000 people that are for sale. It's not fair that some children grow up in homes with parents who can't abide by the law, and in the midst of that, they are put into our foster care system. It's not fair that there are kids all around the world who are waiting to be adopted, who are praying, is there anyone, somebody that cares about me and who will adopt me? It's not fair that some people are in marriages and they work so hard in that marriage and it seems like the other spouse doesn't and 
Now they find themselves in a relational conflict that is tearing them apart. It's not fair that Vladimir Putin is encouraging his soldiers to go to war against the people of Ukraine and is, is, is in an unjust war. And people all over the world today are dealing with the fear and the hurt and the pain of loss. But even though life is unfair, I want to suggest something today, and that is that God is good. Now, before I, I go too deep in that, I know that sounds like one of the cliched answers that Claudia got. I mean, it sounds like something that pastors are supposed to say or Christians say, but where's the goodness of God when the pain is happening? Here's what we know about God. God has certain attributes that are immutable attributes. They are true of him for all time. And the goodness of God is one of those things. So when we are in the pain, we have to believe that God is still good in that pain. But that is a difficult thing to, to grasp. There was a, a person who lived in the first century that dealt with this incredible pain throughout his life, felt like he was an outcast, felt like he was blamed for sins that he had never committed because of a malady that he had. In fact, just last week, Pastor Dale preached about a woman who had experienced blame and shame in her life as she was brought before the religious leaders and told that uh, she's having an affair and she doesn't deserve to live. If you remember the story from last week, there were these religious leaders and they, they literally took this woman out. She was at the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast where uh, people would, would set up these lean-tos and these tents. And so it would have been really easy to catch someone in adultery. They literally catch her, bring her before the leaders, and they begin to pick up stones. And they want to stone this woman. And so they, they're getting ready to hurl the stone when Jesus begins to write something on the ground. And nobody knows what Jesus wrote. People have speculated it. We don't know. We have no idea what he wrote. But whatever it was, it was enough for everyone to drop their stones. And so Jesus looks at the woman now who is standing no longer in front of her accusers, but in front of the God of the universe and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And are they going to accuse you? No, they've left. Well, then neither do I accuse you, Jesus says. Go now, he says, and leave your life of sin. And as you read the rest of John chapter 8, there is something that happens that is a turning point in John's gospel. Because by the end of the gospel, Jesus makes it clear, by the end of chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear that he is calling himself the Son of God. And so the same leaders who want to stone the woman at the beginning of the chapter want to stone Jesus at the end of the chapter. Check out these verses at the end of John chapter 8. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up their stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Several years ago, I was teaching a group of high school students here at Wooddale Church. And I'll never forget uh, that summer. We had a summer series, and at the beginning of the summer, I asked the students, who's God? And they looked at me like, what do you mean, who's God? And, and I said, oh, could you just tell me, who is God? And, and the students began to tell me about God. They began to give me attributes of God, like his goodness, and that God is uh, omnipotent, and that God is, is, is everywhere at once. But they couldn't tell me who God was. One student said, well, God is everything. God is the air we breathe, and God is the desk that I sit at. And I said, wait a second, your God's a desk? And, 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 and I said, guys, let's go back. Let's, let's back up here. God is not a desk. God is not the air. Let's see what God says. And so I let them wrestle with that for a few weeks. And after three weeks, we went to the book of Exodus in chapter three, where God says who he is. Check this out. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am. And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was born, I am. He was telling the religious leaders that he was God, and the religious leaders grew furious. They picked up their stones to kill Jesus. And verse 59 tells us that Jesus miraculously slips away from them, hiding himself amongst the temple grounds. Now that same day, Jesus encounters another person who desperately needs his grace. And so the story continues as we move the pages from chapter 8 to chapter 9 with this verse. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I want you to notice something beautiful about Jesus in verse 1. First of all, I want you to see this phrase, as he went along. When Jesus talks about making disciples in the New Testament, it carries with this idea, as you are going along in your day-to-day lives, make disciples. So moms and dads, you make disciples at the breakfast table and the lunch table and the dinner table with your kids. And, and you make disciples as you are living your life in your workplace. So as you go along, Jesus is demonstrating that idea. But this is what I want you to see. As he went along, he saw. Jesus saw the beggar who was sitting outside of Israel's temple. He saw one who for so much of his life had been ignored. He saw someone who so many people in society chose to walk past. Blindness to the first century Jew was a difficult circumstance to be in at the best. It was a life-threatening situation to be in at the worst. There were no ophthalmologists that you could go to and see if you might be able to get some kind of a surgery that would cure your blindness. You were forced to be a beggar to make your living, and if your parents weren't supportive of you, uh, you could easily just kind of be on your own. Now, most of us don't know what it's like to be blind. I have some friends here at Wooddale Church that could explain to you what it's like to be blind because it's the condition that they find themselves in every day. Ray Charles was considered to be the father of R&B music. Ray Charles was an incredible musician. He was blind. Most of us know that. And uh, he, he had just an incredible, incredible life. Now, Jamie Foxx was chosen to play the role of Ray in the biopic Ray. And in 2004, Jamie Foxx would win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of Ray Charles. In order to prepare himself for the role, Jamie Foxx said, I needed to become Ray. And so every morning he would wake up and he would put a blindfold on his his eyes and he would begin to try to have breakfast and prepare his food and get ready for the day with the blindfold on. When he would get to the studio, he would actually take it a step further. And he had some prosthetics that were made that went over his eyes so that he would totally know what it felt like to be blind and to be able to embrace the role of playing Ray Charles. But at the end of the day, Jamie Foxx got to take the blindfold off. He got to take the prosthetics off. And he went back to being a seeing person. That wasn't true for the life of the beggar outside of Herod's temple. Blindness had been a part of his life since birth. Some say that the blind have exceptional hearing. 
to compensate for their lack of sight, many blind people become adept at listening to everything around them. They listen as they walk down the road. They listen as they sit at the table. They listen to help them understand the surroundings that they are in. The blind beggar that day may have very well known that Jesus was in town. Maybe he heard the interaction that Jesus had with the woman who was caught in adultery and those who wanted to stone her. Maybe he heard the interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees who wanted to stone him. Maybe he heard the pronouncement that Jesus said that I am essentially God. But here's the deal. I don't think in his wildest dreams he thought that that Jesus was going to stop, that Jesus would see him. And then it was Jesus' very disciples who asked a question, a question that seemed almost mean-spirited. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You can just feel the blame, can't you? Feel the shame. For years, the man and his parents had been looked down upon by Jewish society. Some Jewish rabbis taught that a person could actually commit sin while in their mother's womb. It was called prenatal sin. And that when you were born with a disease, well, surely you sinned while you were in your mother's wombs. Or your parents committed such a heinous, awful sin that that blindness had come upon you. So both the child and the parents lived with continual blame in their life. William Barclay, the eminent New Testament scholar, would write that Jewish society almost made a sport out of trying to find the sin in others. Listen, we learn our first lesson about healing from the pain of blame here. And that is this, that we overcome the pain of blame by seeing ourselves and others through the eyes of Jesus. We overcome the pain of blame by seeing ourselves and others through the eyes of Christ. Remember, the conventional wisdom of the day, again, is that The maladies that people faced were the result of their sin. Jesus turns the accusatory question of his disciples on its head to show his providential plan. It wasn't that the man had sinned or his parents had sinned. Look at what Jesus says in verses three and four. Neither the man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I can't emphasize enough how shocking this answer of Jesus would have been to his disciples. Of course, the man or his parents must have been guilty of some kind of sin. Why else would he be blind from birth? But Jesus turned a lifetime of shame, a lifetime of blame away with his answer. And at a surface level, that answer might seem a little bit cruel. God, why? Why would you allow someone to go through suffering so that your glory and that your pain might, your glory and your power might be displayed in their life? Listen, when we suffer, we have an opportunity to demonstrate the glory of God in our lives. Many of you have been following my sister's journey. My sister Jenny is one of my heroes in my life. She is 13 years younger than me. Uh, There's a picture of her behind me and her husband, Matt, and her beautiful baby girl. For uh, many years, my sister dreamed of being married. She got married later in life. She and Matt suffered a number of miscarriages and wondered if they would ever be blessed with a baby. And this past November, the Lord blessed them with little Kylie. It was around the second trimester of her pregnancy that my sister started to experience excruciating pain in her back. And, you know, her friends said to her, Jenny, it's just pregnancy pain. You've never carried a baby to term. That's what you're experiencing right now. You're just experiencing the pain that's normal in pregnancy. And my sister thought, well, that's okay. It is so worth it for the joy of having this beautiful baby girl. And Kylie was born but the pain didn't go away. In January, when 
they were getting close to Kylie's two-month checkup, my sister had a checkup of her own. She went to the doctor and said, the pain just isn't going away. Can, can you do some x-rays? Can we figure out what's going on with my back? And when the doctor saw her, they were so cheerful and they were like, sure, I'm sure it's just going to be some chiropractic or some physical therapy. That's all we're going to need just to get you back in shape. But once they took the x-rays, they came back ashen-faced because my sister's spine had tumors all over it. Her T5 vertebrae had literally been overtaken and there was no more bone. It was just tumor. And the doctor said, oh, Jenny, you're going to need to see an oncologist and some specialists, and you're going to need to go in the next 48 hours. My sister's life hasn't been the same since. She started radiation by that weekend. The radiation caused her T5 vertebrae to swell, and when the swelling happened, the spinal fluid was cut off. My sister had gone home and realized that she was losing feeling in her legs. She went back to the doctors, and by... Tuesday of the following week, she was in an eight-hour surgery. They had to happen within hours to avoid permanent paralysis. She is in the challenge of her life right now. Multiple myeloma cancer, paralysis. She still hasn't been able to walk. She goes to uh, radiation, chemotherapy every week, and she's trying to learn how to walk again. And it may be a year before she's walking again. She may never walk again because at this point, her right leg isn't working. And my sister is a follower of Jesus. And I'm watching her as her older brother. And everything in me wants to say, God, why? Why not me? My kids are grown up. Why my sister? She's just starting this journey as a mom. You gave her this beautiful answer to prayer. Why? And I've been amazed as my sister has written on her Caring Bridge page and on her social media all about the goodness of God in the midst of the trial. Embracing that, God, perhaps there is something that you want to do in this. And it's something that comes out of Jesus' answer and is our second lesson today. And that is this, that we overcome the pain of blame by living for the purpose for which we were created. Do you know why you were created? Are you living your life kind of flitting about? Or are you living your life every day on mission for Jesus? You can hear the urgency in Jesus' voice in verses 4 and 5. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus did not want the disciples to waste their lives. And I love, let's go back to that verse. I love uh, this word here. As long as it is day, who? We must do the works of who? Of him who sent me. See, Jesus called the disciples to live on mission, but he called them to do it not in the context of people who were living all alone, but in the context of community. And if you don't have community in your life, it is difficult, I believe, for you to be able to live on mission are you wasting your life or are you living your life with the purpose that God has given to you? After saying this, verse six tells us, Jesus again goes to the ground and this time he spits on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and then he takes that mud and he places it on the man's eyes. And if you're like me, you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? That just seems weird. But in the first century, people thought that a noble person's saliva, and Jesus would have been considered noble, noble, that that saliva had curative qualities. So Jesus was actually using a common thinking of the day, but he was doing what nobody else could do because he was sovereign and he was God. 
and he was going to use that to do a miracle in the man's life. Go, he tells him in verse 7, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means, and I want you to pay attention to this, this word means sent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. Now John's gospel records eight of Jesus' miracles. This is one of those miracles. Other gospel writers, when they talk about the miracles, talk about the compassion of Jesus. In other passages, you see words like when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In John's gospel, just eight miracles are talked about. Every one of them has a specific purpose, and every one of those miracles reveal to us the glory and the power of God. We're going to talk in just a minute about what the purpose of that miracle was, but I want you to notice that Jesus sends the man to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Why? Because he is going to then send him from that pool with a new mission in his life. In his book, God Came Near, Max Lucado tells the story of a man who had lost his sight. For 51 of his 53 years, Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way through five decades of darkness. And then and then he could see. Bob had an amazing surgery, and he had this, this skilled surgeon perform a complicated operation, and for the first time in his life, for the first time in 51 years, he was able to see. And they asked Bob, Bob, what's it like to be someone who, who was blind but now sees? And he says, uh, I never dreamed that yellow is so yellow, he says. And, and, I, and I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow, but red, he says, red is my favorite color, and I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon, and I, I like nothing better, he says, than seeing a jet plane going through the sky and leaving a vapor trail, and of course, sunrises and sunsets, and I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. He says, light, he says, you could never believe how wonderful everything is. Now, he had sight for two years before he lost his sight. Ray Charles was able to see before he lost his sight. The man outside of Herod's temple had never seen. And he must have been overwhelmed at the miracle. He goes to the pool of Siloam with his mud on his eyes from Jesus' spit and mud, and he washes and he sees. He sees the pool. He sees the faces of people. He'd never seen people. He'd never seen his hands. He sees the animals probably being taken to the temple to be sacrificed. He'd never seen the animals. He'd smelled the animals. He'd never seen the temple. It would have been overwhelming. The man Jesus healed had never had sight. And everything changed in an instant. And the world took notice. Check out his neighbors in verse 8. And those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. Jesus, the light of the world, had given sight to a man who had lived his entire life in darkness. This was a miracle like the world had never seen. It's a miracle that Isaiah's uh, prophecy said four different times that Jesus would come and he would bring sight to the blind. Notice in verse 11, the man simply says, the man they call Jesus puts the mud on my eyes. His perception of Jesus at that point is he's a man named Jesus. 
but that perception is going to grow as the chapter goes on. While the miracle of being given physical sight was spectacular, here's the real message of that miracle. The message is simply this, to overcome spiritual blindness, we need to be given spiritual sight, and that sight can only come from God. Not everyone can overcome their spiritual blindness because some are too stubborn. I talk to people all the time who have all the facts. They've seen people whose lives have been changed by Jesus, but they want nothing to do because of one thing or another in their life. Here's what happens to the Pharisees with this blind beggar. Check it out. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So the man's understanding of who Jesus is has now expanded from he's a man to he's a prophet. But what Jesus did divided the religious elite. Some struggled with how a sinner could do such a thing on the Sabbath, and others were like, you know what? A sinner can't do such things. Maybe there's more to who Jesus is. Because the leaders are divided, they decide they need to call the man's parents in. Maybe the parents, you know, the other people who'd been blamed throughout their life for this man's blindness, maybe they'd have additional insight. The parents were scared to death. They'd lived a lifetime of shame and blame. They didn't understand what was going on, and they were afraid if they came out too public in their belief of Jesus, they might get in trouble. So look at their answer. We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. So what do the leaders do? They're going to call the blind man back in. And the blind man is going to give us our third lesson today on how we overcome the pain of blame. And it comes by caring more about the opinions of God than the opinions of others. If you want to overcome the pain of blame, you need to care more about the opinion of God than the opinion of others. You know, the older I get, the less I care about others' opinions. But it hasn't completely gone away. It doesn't on this side of heaven for most of us. What should matter is God's opinion of us. The blind beggar had spent the majority of his adult life trying to eke out a living by begging hoping that someone would have mercy on him. And now he'd experienced incredible mercy, and so he had a choice as he's trying to think through, okay, is he just a man? Could a man do that? Oh. Is he a prophet? Well, maybe there's more to it. And he, he begins to understand that he had been healed by God. Check it out. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? So he's given an indication. He's, he's now considering himself a disciple. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. He goes on, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
The uneducated blind man turns the tables on the educated Pharisees. He gives Jesus the glory. The story of the blind man is the story of everyone who has been found by Jesus Christ, who's had their lives transformed by the one who seeks us. Jesus Christ takes those who were once dead to sin and makes us alive in him. And that's news we're sharing with the world. So now the man's thrown out of the temple for his defense in Christ. And what's going to happen to him? Check it out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, look at that. When who? When Jesus finds him, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, that's the real miracle. Jesus transformed the man from the inside out. The man worships Jesus right there and then. Jesus found him, which brings us to our final lesson today, and that is this, that we overcome the pain of blame by trusting in the light of the world, Jesus, who extinguishes spiritual darkness. The blind man's faith was a progressive faith. In verse 11, he's healed by Jesus the man. In verse 17, he is healed by Jesus, who is a prophet. And now it is Jesus, his Lord, who is worthy of worship. When you've lived your entire life in blame and shame, it could be hard to trust anyone. But Jesus isn't just anyone. John 9 begins with Jesus seeing the man, and towards the end of the story, Jesus seeks out the one who the religious leaders threw out of the temple. We overcome pain, and we overcome the pain of blame by placing our faith in Jesus. And I wonder today if you've done that. There's an old hymn that I, I love. It's Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in that song, and we sing that song here a lot, that says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the face of God, he to save my soul from danger interposed his precious blood. My hope is that today you'll place your faith in Jesus if you've never done that. May today be the day that you say, Jesus, I'm done. I'm done trying to live life on my terms. I'm done trying to be defined by what everybody else says I should be defined by. And I'm ready to start seeing myself the way that you see me. Here's the deal. You don't have to be perfect in Romans 5, 8, the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ loves you. And he didn't wait till you were all fixed and everything was perfect. He loves you and he gave himself for you. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He took your sins, all of the things that are the things that we should be held guilty for, and he took it upon himself on a cross. We're gonna celebrate that in a few weeks on Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday. And he loved you enough to go to the cross and die in your place so that you could live transformed by him. And I wanna suggest whether you're watching online at Loring Park, at Edina, or at Eden Prairie, that today be the day that you give your life to Jesus. And it begins with a prayer of surrender. If you've never done that, I wanna invite you right now where you're at to pray this prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you saw me and you see me just as I am and you love me. Thank you that you're not content to leave me this way. Jesus, today I ask you to forgive me of all the sins I've ever committed in my life. And I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Today I give you me. Jesus, today I want you to do in me what I can't possibly do in myself. 
Would you give me a purpose that is greater than anything I could have ever imagined? Would you help me to see people the way you see me? Would you help me to love others with your love? In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer today, that is the most important thing you're ever going to do. And I want to encourage you, tell your campus pastor, tell the friend who bought you, tell your online host, tell whoever it is you need to tell about the decision you've made. We have something here at Wooddale called the Faith Starter Kit that we'd love to give you after the services today or a link online too. And we want to make sure that you know that that is the most important thing you can ever do. But some of you, that's something you did long ago. So for the rest of you, I want to give you three making it personal points at the end of our message today. Number one, this is some homework for you this week. Write down the ways that Jesus has shown himself to be faithful to you. None of us deserve his glory. None of us deserve his grace. None of us deserve his love. But he gives it in abundance. Yeah, it's been a hard couple of years. Yeah, there's uncertainty in our world, but God is still at work. How's God been faithful to you? Number two, ask God to help you see others the way that he sees them to respond with his heart and to be his hands and feet in this generation. Let's not be 21st century Pharisees. Let's be people who live on mission for Jesus, seeing people with his eyes, responding with his heart. Listen, I pray that prayer almost every day of my life. When I wake up, I say, God, you're gonna do some great things in the world today. I wanna be a part of that. So help me to see people like you do and respond that way. And then finally, if you don't know your purpose, last year, Wooddale developed a purpose inventory. You can find it at wooddale.org slash find-your-purpose. And if you'll take that inventory, it's a way to say, okay, God, here's how you made me. Here's some of the gifts you've given me. This is the passion that you've given me in my life. Here's some abilities. Here's the personality you gave me. And here's some experiences I had in my life. And if I'm to tie all of that up and serve you with my purpose, what might that be? And we've got dozens of coaches that would love to walk alongside of you and help you figure out what your purpose is in this generation. Thanks for being with us this week. Thank you for uh, serving God the way that you serve him. And may you live overcoming the pain of anyone's blame because it's through seeing ourselves the way that Jesus sees us that we begin to find freedom. And it's when we see ourselves through the light of the light of this world that we can overcome spiritual darkness, which ends up leading into spiritual blame and pain. God wants to help you overcome that. May God bless you this week.